This podcast is about the unexplained death of a young woman, Laura Van Wye. I have reviewed and I will report on the contents of official case files provided by the police department that's investigating her possible homicide, including witness interviews and police reports. You will hear me provide my own opinions about these materials in the hopes of shedding new light on this cold case. It's important to stress, no person has ever been charged or convicted of killing Laura, and everybody identified in this podcast is innocent until proven otherwise. In the early summer of 2019, I was in my first year of journalism school at NYU. I'd only just moved to New York the previous fall, and I didn't know too many people. But two friends from my old law firm lived in the area, and one of them had a condo in the West Village with the ultimate New York amenity, outdoor space. One night, the three of us got together for drinks. It was warm out, and the soundtrack was the incessant drone of window AC units. So we were in our friend Mark Dorr, his apartment in the West Village, in, specifically in the garden. We were just having drinks and chatting and having a good time. I think part of it was Mark was celebrating the opening of his backyard. Don't you remember that being like some aspect to it? So they got in the furniture for it? Yeah, something like that. Like I think that they had only recently moved into the apartment. Because remember, didn't he have like a whole couch there that didn't have cushions yet? We were having kind of an impromptu reunion. The three of us are alumni of this huge lawsuit that had consumed years of our lives. It was the sort of intense, once-in-a-lifetime experience that stays with you and binds you to the people you shared it with. When we get together now, there's an echo of that old intensity. I think that's the same night that after you left, Mark and I stayed up until four in the morning drinking wine, and I was so I'm drunk sure it was. that when I got home, I fell in my own bathtub. <laughs> Were you okay? No, I wasn't okay. I, like, banged my tailbone pretty good. Because I remember hearing from you guys, like, a day or two later. Like, oh, you were smart to get out of there. Because I think I left pretty late, too, and I remember being pretty hungover myself. That's Anne Champion. Of the three of us, she's the only one still at our old law firm, Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. She's a partner now, with a Park Avenue office and a house in the country. While I'd been at the firm, Annie and I were work friends. That's not a slight on our friendship. When you share responsibility with someone, face deadlines and setbacks together, you learn about one another in ways you might never achieve with a social friend. You have these intense experiences, especially working on the case that we worked on together, which involved a lot of late nights, a lot of highly stressful situations. It's kind of like being in the military with somebody, right? You get this kind of bunker, bunker bonding or bunker mentality. As well as I knew Annie, there were gaps. I knew she was from Iowa, but I knew very little about her childhood. I suppose that reserve is part of what makes her such a good lawyer. You only learn what she wants you to learn. That night, in Mark's backyard, we were talking about my new career in journalism. I was telling them that one of the hardest things about breaking into the business can be finding stories. I didn't realize it at the time, but Annie had one, and she was looking for someone to tell it. I just kind of told you guys the story from the beginning, I think, right? What you actually said was, you should do a podcast about my friend's murder. Oh. <laughs> from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, I'm Jason Stavers. This is Bonaparte.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Let me tell you about Annie. Annie is powerful. The law requires a relentlessness, and Annie has a ceaselessly active mind. She churns through the thorniest problems and leaves empty coffee cups and stacks of marked-up drafts in her wake. But as hard as she works, she bears the burden lightly. She's funny and cynical about the lawyer rat race. You have to be. You have to have some distance, or you burn out. Especially when you work on the urgent, complex cases that Annie handles. We've got some breaking news tonight. The White House has just suspended the credentials of CNN's Jim Acosta. Sometimes they make international headlines. It was one of the most combative news conferences President Trump has had since he took office. By the end of the day, the White House refused to allow a CNN correspondent to enter the White House grounds. I am now giving my hard pass to the Secret Service. I remember exactly where I was when I heard that his press pass had been revoked. I was at a media law dinner at the Hyatt attached to Grand Central, and I saw that on Twitter. And so we immediately started working with CNN to get Acosta's press pass back. There's only a few times in modern history that a news organization has sued the White House for access. We had to seek a preliminary injunction, go to court, seek emergency relief. We are just now getting some breaking news on the ruling on that CNN lawsuit. And a judge is ruling in favor of Jim Acosta and CNN. It all happened within seven days. It was remarkable. Later, Annie represented another journalist in a similar dispute. Brian Karam, an independent reporter who at that time was working as Playboy's White House correspondent. Same thing. And then I also started working with Mary Trump. The president's niece was releasing a book that the president did not want published. Robert Trump, the president's brother and Mary's uncle, filed a motion to block it, saying it violated a confidentiality agreement. We ultimately prevailed on the preliminary injunction, and Mary's book came out and was a huge runaway success. Annie has deposed right-wing paramilitaries in a Bogota prison. She helped extricate a victim of the Nexium sex cult and she's challenged discriminatory redistricting on behalf of minority voters in New York. In the case we worked on together, our firm uncovered and stopped one of the largest legal scams in history, a $9 billion fraudulent judgment against Chevron. By any metric, Annie is successful. She's married, raising two boys, and on her way to the top of her profession. She's come a long way from her teen years in Iowa. Something like 95% of the land in Iowa is cultivated. So, you know, you drive to the edge of town, there's a cornfield or a soybean field or a pig farm or whatever, right? I mean, that, the entire state is that. And like your field trips when you were growing up would be like, we're going to go see the bale hay, you know? Annie grew up in Iowa City, but rural Iowa was never far away. Like a popular summer job, 
was detasseling corn. You go row by row in the hot sun, hand pulling the tassels out of each ear to stop the corn from pollinating. Iowa smells like dirt. When you get off the plane there, you're like, oh yeah, that's dirt. That's what Iowa smells like. You know, it's a good smell. Annie was the sixth of eight kids, part of a prosperous family of high achievers. I think that actually my family, my childhood, I think explains a lot about me and my attitude towards the world and my way of dealing with things. Because when you have that many siblings, especially because I was one of the younger ones, I'm the sixth, you developed a lot of conflict skills early on, right? It's funny because I found an old report card when I was home just now. It was from when I was in kindergarten. And the teacher's like, Annie, I'm like five years old. And she's like, Annie needs to learn to be less confrontational with her peers. (laughs) I'm not afraid of people. I'm not afraid of conflict. And most people are. Iowa City is a college town. It's where the University of Iowa has its main campus. So it's a culturally diverse place, full of hippies and artists and Vietnam vets. And there's a lot of mixing between college students and locals. Kids grow up fast if they want to. Two of Annie's closest friends were sisters, Laura and Sarah Van Wy. Sarah was Annie's age, and they met early in high school. Back then, if you were friends with Sarah, then you were also friends with her younger sister, Laura. One of my first memories of Laura actually was being at the public library with her and Sarah, and we were all studying. Whatever Sarah was learning, she would just learn it. So it was like she was basically in Sarah's grade, even though she was two grades behind. She was basically doing college math. I mean, she was just that smart. You know, and she was the kind of person that when she decided to do something, you know, she would just be amazing at it. Like, I remember this garden that she had. um, You know, she's like, I'm just going to have a garden, even though, you know, you have no reason to believe that she's ever had a lot of experience gardening but she would suddenly have the most amazing garden you've ever seen. I still remember that garden. Just like the peas crawling up the terrace and just everything, it was amazing. You could feed yourself out of that garden for a year, you know? Even in Iowa City, a community of smart kids, rebels, misfits, artists, Laura stood out. Flamboyant, brilliant, and intensely invested in everything she did. Laura drew people to her, Annie as much as anyone. They became fast friends. And Laura was someone Annie didn't just like, but genuinely admired. Laura had principles in the sense that she was protective of other people. And if she thought something, you know, thought someone was hurting someone else or doing something that was messed up, she would not be afraid to intervene. She would intervene. She had a powerful personality. Smart, bold, gorgeous. I mean, she was just dynamic. Not surprisingly, The standard middle-class life track didn't appeal to Laura. She left the public high school for an alternative arts-oriented program, then dropped out altogether to go traveling on the West Coast with her boyfriend. When she was 19, she gave birth to her son, Samson. She threw herself into motherhood with her typical intensity and even made plans to open a daycare. Annie stayed a bit more within the lines. She graduated from high school, and she got a degree in physics from the University of Iowa. But then she drifted a bit, the way smart, ambitious people sometimes do. She taught English in Korea for a year, and then she went backpacking through Mexico. So in October of 1996, she and two friends, they were staying in what was then a tiny, obscure town on the Yucatan Peninsula called Tulum. There was nothing there. There was not a single hotel. It was Palapas, and that was it. 
The sand is like white sand. It's made out of crushed up crustaceans. It's not made out of rock. Um, so it's this beautiful white sand and it's a long beach. The water is turquoise. At night, there's like the phosphorescent algae. I mean, it's just, it's outrageously gorgeous. I was calling home every Sunday because, you know, this is pre-cell phones. You know, there was no easy way to stay in touch. One time my brother answered and um, he, he said, your friend Laura is dead. And I said, I was like, what? And he said, yeah, your friend Laura's dead. And, you know, she was found by the side of the highway. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, I just couldn't compute what he was talking about. I immediately hung up, actually, and called Sarah. Um, and she confirmed that that, you know, that it was true. Um, and so then I just tried to get home as fast as I could. I don't remember anything about that trip. I, I couldn't even tell you how long I was on the road. I have no idea. 1.50 a.m., Saturday, October 26th, 1996. A clear night under a full moon in Cahoka, Missouri. Cahoka is a small town in farm country, two hours south of Iowa City. Its main street is 12 blocks of laundromats and auto parts retailers. Every gas station has diesel, and the biggest operation is the 15-acre John Deere dealership on the south edge of town. That's where Route 136 passes Cahoka. It's a highway that runs straight from the western horizon, a thin band of asphalt across the Pancake Flat Plains, carrying intermittent local traffic in the occasional interstate trucker. That night, a truck driver named Dan Clyde was driving Route 136 towards Cahoka. He was driving by. He was slowing down because he was coming into town. And he says, you know, that he knew he was about to come upon an intersection with a flashing caution light and he was watching for traffic, but he saw something out of the corner of his eye, as he describes it, possibly hay or something that might have fallen off a truck on or near the shoulder. And it caught his eye enough and it looked odd enough to him that he actually pulls his truck over and walks back. He wasn't rushing back, but he saunters back and he describes how he felt, a, you know, he felt a little bit of fear. He felt like this is a good way to get shot, I think he says. So he walks back and then he realizes it's a person Clyde finds a young woman, unconscious. He's not sure if she's alive or dead, but he sees a small pool of blood near her head. The highway where he's standing is deserted, but the lights of Cahoka are just down the road. So he ran over to a Yurko, that's the convenience store at the corner, the intersection there with the light, Phillips 66 gas station, and he calls the police from there. I believe he gets a ride back to the body with somebody from the Yurko drives him back. The senior police officer on the scene that night was Officer Bruce Clemens of the Missouri Highway Patrol. Clemens was a big man whose bald head fit perfectly under his Smokey the Bear trooper hat. He was an experienced criminal investigator who'd worked major crimes across northern Missouri. He arrives at the scene at 2.10 in the morning. Her body was lying in such a manner as the head was lying east and the feet west, resting on her left side, parallel to the road. Clemens had examined many automobile accidents. That night on Route 136, however, he concluded almost immediately that this wasn't an accident scene. This was a crime scene. Trooper Clemens immediately notices that 
given the injuries that this person has incurred, that there's no blood at the scene, there's no skid marks in the gravel. And not only that, the outer layer of clothing that she had on, a jacket, is unscuffed and doesn't have any blood on it. It's a black satin jacket that says Mike Sanders Masonry West Point, Iowa on the back. She's wearing, oddly, multiple layers of clothing, right? So she's wearing two shirts, a jacket, a bra, underpants, and then she's also got tan pants and maroon sweatpants with a white lining. And so, you know, it's very odd. She's got two layers of clothing on. She's found lightly clutching like a sippy cup, you know, like a disposable bottle that you might buy that has like a sip, sip top. The bottle was sitting upright. You know, no bottle sitting upright after you get hit by a car. <laughs> Her legs had been smashed to the point that they, you know, that they were flat, basically. There's nothing that looks like a, an accident took place here. And so the question is, where's her blood? And how did she get injured to the point that she lost that much blood? Clearly, she was injured to the point of incapacitation. Clothes were put on her, and she's left on the side of the highway. The young woman was still alive when Clemens arrived, but she never regained consciousness and died before sunrise. Clemens was left with a riddle. The woman's injuries were severe, but her hands were unmarked, and her black satin jacket was pristine. She'd lost liters of blood, yet there was hardly any blood on the highway. Where was it? It wasn't until morning that the police identified the woman as Laura Van Wye. But how she got there and what happened to her those questions have gone unanswered for 25 years. For law enforcement, it's an open investigation, a ghost they're still trying to find. For Laura's loved ones, it's an open wound, grief that was never given closure. The death of a young person is always cruel, but an unsolved death, a suspected homicide, offers a special kind of cruelty. Laura's death and the unanswered questions of what happened to her that night opened a rift in her family and in her community that has only grown wider with time. Annie made it back from Mexico in time for Laura's funeral, and afterwards, she stayed in Iowa City for a few months to help Sarah and her mother. But Iowa was never the same for Annie, and that spring, she moved to New York. That's where I met her a decade later, she was five or six years into her legal career then, already a rising star. I asked her recently if Laura's death was part of why she became a lawyer. Some of her friends think so. Lots of people go to law school because they want to right wrongs. But she said no. She said in the years after she left Iowa, she thought about Laura all the time. But she rarely thought about her death, never thought about it as a case, as something to solve. Solving crimes was something cops did. Mm -hmm. I got a call from my friend Jacob, who was a mutual friend of Laura's and mine. I was in my office. I was at work. Um, and it was my old office, my office on the 47th floor. He called me in the middle of the day. He doesn't call me often. We probably talk three or four times a year. I would characterize him as sounding more surprised than anything else. It was the summer of 2017, and Jacob was calling Annie to tell her that a sheriff's deputy in Iowa had called him about Laura. The deputy's name was John Zane. Like most of the law enforcement officers who'd worked Laura's case, he'd never stopped thinking about it. He was retiring that fall, 
and retirement had inspired him to make one more effort to shake the trees and see if anything fell out. What ended up shook was Annie. It does kind of pull you out of time because the the time of my life when this happened is so different from where I am now as a person. Um, so it does kind of pull me out of time a little bit. Jacob and I had never, and to my, my, my knowledge, none of Laura's friends had really ever been contacted by law enforcement. Annie didn't have any new information, but she called Zane anyway, because she had something else, something she had acquired in the two decades since Laura's death. She had a lawyer's training, the resources of a law firm, and I think a new perspective, a sense of obligation to justice and the confidence to fulfill that obligation. After talking to Zane, she called Laura's mother, Leanne. I said, you know, Leanne, I have resources now. I'm a, like, I'm a real lawyer with a significant amount of experience, not in criminal cases, but I know how to write a letter to the FBI. You know, I know how to push certain governmental levers to try to get things done. I know how to read, a, put together a bunch of facts and figure out the most plausible explanation. You know, maybe I can help get this going. And so... At that point, she told me about the information that she had and like, gave me a Dropbox link, and I started looking through all of it. Annie and her husband were remodeling their home that summer and living in a rental house in the woods up in the Hudson River Valley, north of New York City. The whole house was either wood or wallpaper, like lots of patterns, lots of, you know, kind of dark surfaces, packed full of stuff the way a house is when someone lives in it for decades and raises a family in it, you know? A little bit suffocating, actually. The main set of material that Annie got from Leanne was the Missouri police record. The file is several hundred pages of typewritten notes from police interviews, forensic and lab reports, and the sort of bureaucratic detritus that collects in any official record. I think I read it immediately. I read it on my computer first. I did ultimately print it out. Near the front of the file was a document of singular importance, Officer Clemens' original report on the crime scene. A detail in that report caught Annie's attention, a drawing of Laura's body. It's a very simple drawing. It just shows the, the road with the dotted line down the middle and then the shoulders. And it shows her with her head just on the shoulder, just over the line onto the shoulder, and her legs almost still dangling slightly onto the roadway. That diagram is one of the few sort of arresting um, things in, in the file in terms of the physical reality of what happened. You know, I will say too, for the first couple of months, I was having terrible nightmares about it. It was really hard for me the first time to get through that, really hard. Um, so, um, sorry, I'm really not performing here, but it is, it's hard. Um, I didn't understand Leanne's fear or Sarah's fear as well before. I mean, I did understand it on an intellectual level, of course, but not on a physical level. And, you know, listen, I'm, I'm an adult, I, you know, I have resources. Like, I'm not unduly freaked out about what these rednecks in the Midwest can do. But at the same time, you know, Laura, while in their hands, was murdered, right? And so that kind of freaked me out and brought home, I don't know, just the physical fear that I think 
Sarah and Leanne especially must have felt for probably years. Annie knew the basics about how Laura was found. She knew the police were convinced that it had been foul play and that the absence of blood at the scene was a critical factor. But the more details she learned, the stranger the situation became. Remember, Laura was wearing a black satin jacket. Its pristine condition was one of the clues that this had not been a hit and run. But also, it wasn't Laura's jacket. Then, in the jacket pockets, the police found an inexplicable collection of items. A pocket knife, also not Laura's, with the blade open. A paper plate folded in half containing a scoop of cooked rice and a glass jar half filled with colored sand. The knife was in Laura's right pocket, but Laura was left-handed. And she had a baby blanket stuffed under her shirt. The paramedics initially believed she was pregnant. Annie also noticed what the police didn't find. No money and no identification. I would try to go out for a walk after dinner. Maybe I would read some of the file and I would go out for a walk. And it was, again, it was out in the woods and it was spooky because also it would be pitch black, right? No ambient light, like just pitch black. I was alone and I was in a state of mind where, you know, terrible things can and do happen, right? Like what happened to Laura. So I would just get easily freaked out if I was alone. I was kind of processing this by myself because my husband didn't know Laura. Um, and it's honestly too much for her sister. It was just not something Sarah could handle. And I totally get that. I was kind of dealing with it alone and that there was no one immediately who could help me process it. Obviously, the grief is not as raw as it was 25 years ago, but it's still there. I think that the newer emotions were, you know, the anger about the fact that that this happened at all and the fact that it wasn't solved. That was not something I had felt before. The police reconstructed Laura's last hours based on their interviews with witnesses. That Friday afternoon, they knew that Laura had left Iowa City with her ex-boyfriend and their baby, to go to a party at his mother's house. So there are three locations we'll focus on in this story. First, there's Iowa City, where Annie and Laura grew up. Two hours due south of Iowa City is Cahokia, Missouri, where Laura was found. In between them, about half an hour north of Cahokia, is a tiny little town where Laura's ex-boyfriend grew up and where his mother still lived. That's where she went to a party the last night of her life. That town is called Bonaparte. I always thought if I just move to Bonaparte for a year, I'll be able to solve this crime. Mm -hmm. Just like move to Bonaparte, get drunk at the bar for a year, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll probably know what happened at that point, you know? Annie can't really move to Bonaparte, but that doesn't mean she's powerless. This needs to be solved. It's solvable and it should have been solved, you know? For two years now, Annie has been pushing for state and federal law enforcement to focus on Laura's case. She's been researching the latest in cold case investigative techniques and talking to experts about raising awareness of the case. Earlier this year, when travel restrictions eased, we decided it was time to get to the ground truth. So we traveled to Iowa to meet in person with Laura's friends, law enforcement, and people who may have been the last to see Laura alive. 
somebody must know what happened to Laura Van Wy. That's next time on Bonaparte. Bonaparte is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is written and hosted by me, Jason Stavers. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producers are Jason Hoke and Andrew Richards. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin, with story guidance from Matt Willis and Pete Sale. The series producer is Thomas Curry. The executive producer is Emma Weatherill. Original music by Thomas Ross Fitzsimmons. Audio mix and sound design by Peregrine Andrews at Moving Air. Special thanks to Thomas Matisik, Alavi Kutamasu, and Rob Boynton. Visit the Champion for Laura Van Wy Facebook page or championforlaura.com for more information about how you can help. If you like the show, please make sure to leave a review and don't forget to tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.